This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Bruce Alderman. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Bruce is an affiliate faculty at John F. Kennedy University in consciousness and transformative studies. His contact experiences include some firsts for aliens and artists, glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, and also the art of creating a language from scratch. I think the first experience that I recall that relates to any of this happened when I was just out playing in the streets. I think I'd been riding my bicycle around in my neighborhood as a young child. Maybe I was eight or nine years old. And I remembered looking up into the sky and I saw a green light, um, which was just moving steadily across the sky. And I hadn't normally seen green lights. I I was familiar with red or, or white or other things, but hadn't seen a green light. So I just stopped and watched it. And I, as it progressed across the sky, suddenly it stopped and then took a right angle turn and shot off very quickly. And that struck me as highly unusual. So I, I just hopped on my bike and, and hurried back home and uh, just told my parents about it. And, and as parents do, they took me only somewhat seriously and kind of brushed it off. Um, and I, I put it out of my mind mostly, though I would say that uh, my childhood was informed with a, uh, a sense of wonder and interest in space, in the cosmos, uh, primarily through my father, who was an a aeronautics buff and a, a big fan of NASA and uh, would often take me out into the backyard and we'd look up at the sky together and he would just talk to me about the vastness of what's out there and the the un, unimaginable frontiers of, of, of human learning that still await us and possibly the other civilizations or life forms that might be out in the universe um, awaiting contact. And so he he was very fascinated by that. He wasn't into the UFO scene or anything like that, but he was convinced that there must be life out there. And he tried to instill in me uh, a sense of wonder and curiosity about the larger universe. Was that a daytime sighting when you were eight or nine? It was. It was probably about uh, five or six in the evening, I think. Anything else in the sky besides the sun? There wasn't. Um, Yeah, I I wasn't seeing any other airplanes anywhere. Um, It was a fairly clear sky, just a, a little bit of clouds. Um, it was in Texas, so you know. Often we have. Uh, sometimes it can be pretty rainy, but often it's a pretty clear sky, and that's what we had that time. Wow, how large would you say it was? Was it spherical? It it seemed very far away, so it was not very big. It was about the size of a star, um, and it so it seemed very high up, and uh, you know, not like a, a a low vehicle or a blimp or anything like that. It seemed very high up. I just was tracking it as it was moving because one, it was an unusual color, uh, but then when it just kind of stopped dead in the sky for a moment and then shot off at another angle um, very quickly and, and, and I soon lost sight of it, uh, that, that really made me think that I'd seen something unusual. <laughs> the right angles and the stopping take us out of airplane territory. Right. Were there other unusual milestones from this time? I think one I would like to mention is just the impact that the movie uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind had on me. At the time, I I was interested in, uh, you know, UFOs somewhat. That's what attracted me to the movie. But I didn't really know what I was in for. And just watching it, and I was still, you know, pretty young at this time, watching it just really opened me up to a a sense of awe and rapture, especially as the mothership was coming down. And I think I would classify my experience in the theater watching that movie as probably my first religious or mystical experience. I felt myself enter a high state of ecstasy and unusual state of consciousness for anything that I had experienced before. And really a uh, uh, a rushing energy that just moved through my body. And the only way it could express itself 
maybe a little bit embarrassingly for me, was to come out in a rush of words like uh, glossolalia. I found myself speaking in a different language rapidly, and I didn't know what I was saying, but words were just pouring out of me. Um, and my father was staring at me like, what's happening? <laughs> um, but I was just caught up in that arrival and the the magnificence of the lights coming down and the, the, the booming sounds and music and just felt my heart opened up and I, I touched something deep in myself that gave me my first and only experience, I guess, of speaking in tongues. We were not that kind of a religious family. I had no experience with that kind of thing, but that's what just poured out of me in the rapture of that moment. That touches on something we'll cover later on, which is your constructing a language. But to this event, reflecting on it all these years later, you feel it was akin to speaking in tongues? Yes, I really feel it was. And, uh, you know, I've always been skeptical of, of, you know, that branch of Christianity. It just seemed kind of silly to me. And uh, I, I never took that seriously as even a real mystical type experience or religious experience. I, I thought it was just uh, fabrication and, and psychological manipulation and things like that. Um, but that experience, you know, helped me uh, have a different appreciation for it. Now looking back at it and what that experience involved, that um, it really did feel like a deep integration of things in my body at that time and a deep opening to other possibilities that weren't normally available to me. And it didn't feel like, to me, just um, unstructured um, syllabic babbling, but it, it felt something uh, was coming through that was uh, structured and meaningful, even though I couldn't grasp it. Do you feel it was important of what was to come in your subsequent experiences? I do. I feel like that experience was, uh, it, maybe it, it laid the seeds for or was a harbinger of some of the ways that my creativity and my explorations into the realms of, of otherness um, would manifest, you know, especially in exploring conlangs, um, but in, in other dimensions too, in terms of my uh, ultimate interest in, in spiritual and mystical practices, which at the time I, I had no exposure to. There were a number of different kinds of, you know, anomalous experiences that happened to me, you know, growing up. I might put them more in the domain of, of you know, skinwalker ranch kind of stuff, not necessarily pointing to um, UFOs or, or aliens, but just anomalous kinds of experiences that happened. But I would say probably an experience that did at least bump up against that whole domain of, of extraterrestrial intelligence and aliens, though at the moment I didn't experience it as that, happened to me when I was actually homeless and living with my mother out in the wilderness in Arizona. We had had uh, a series of unfortunate um, events, a kind of perfect storm of events, a very difficult um, and destructive divorce that my mother went through, um, not with my father, but with uh, uh, her second husband. And that ended up destroying her business and other uh, sources of income all dried up at the same time. I was in college at the time, but she lost everything, including her home. And I dropped out of college and came to join her. And uh, we decided we weren't going to stay in Texas, but to head out to Arizona. We figured we both had spiritual interests at the time. So we wrote enlightenment or bust on the back of our car and <laughs> drove off into the desert. We figured we were already bust, so there was only enlightenment left. <laughs> so yeah, we did that. And, and so it was during that period of my life where I had left college and I was living out in the wilderness. Uh, we, we were, of course, looking for work and trying to find a, a new home. Uh, but there were several months that I was out in the wilderness like that. And because I didn't have work, I, I spent a lot of the time reading. I was big into Krishnamurti's books at, those at that time. And I also uh, spent time playing music 
out in the canyons and, and meditating by the creek and exploring the, the red rocks. Uh, we, we were near Sedona. So it was in that context where we were staying in the tent and several things happened uh, over a period of four nights. It was a, to me, I regarded it then and I, I still regard it now as something of an initiatory experience. The first night, I just dreamed that I was sitting without my shirt inside the tent with my back to the flap of the tent and something very large stuck its head in the tent and breathed on my back. Felt like maybe like a buffalo or something from behind me breathing on my back. And it just came with this intense feeling that something big is coming. And then that, that's all that happened in that experience. The second night, I went to sleep, and I woke up a little bit later in the evening, and I was only partially awake. My body could not move, and I, I was aware that I was you know, in a kind of uh, sleep paralysis still, but I could hear a voice speaking to me that was explaining to me the nature of consciousness. And that went on for hours. I just laid in that state with this voice talking to me about the nature of consciousness. And then the next night, I, I went to sleep again. This time, I dreamed that I was sitting in an unfamiliar location, and I was approached by some beings who they looked human but they looked incredibly powerful and intense. Their gaze was fierce, like the eyes of predatory animals, like tigers or, or, or uh, birds of prey. But I didn't have the sense that they were evil. I just had the feeling that they were incredibly powerful. And I was intimidated by them, but not scared of them. And one of them leaned close and whispered into my ear that I needed to come with them. And so I went with them and they brought me to a place out in the woods where there was kind of a gravelly kind of floor and there were trees around me, but where I was standing was kind of gravelly or, or full of a lot of you know, small river stones. And in that, there was a, an indentation, like a bowl or cup pressed down into the stone. They asked me to go stand inside that, that bowl or that indentation. And they stood around me. And they told me, just relax and let whatever happens happen. And so I relaxed. And then I found my, my body began to spontaneously move in different kinds of gestures. I became self-conscious at some point and wondered what this was about and what was happening and was I doing what they needed me to be doing. And as that happened, kind of the spell of the moment broke and my body stopped moving. So then they asked me to try something else. And they said, try doing a backwards bend within that bowl where I would keep my feet on the ground and then arch my back and then put my hands on the ground where my stomach would be up to the sky. So I did. I bent back like that, making that kind of arch. And suddenly, this powerful beam of light shot from the center of the, uh, the concave bowl and shot right through the middle of my belly. And my body began to rise up along the beam and rotate around it. And as that was happening, I felt my consciousness just expand out into the universe into an incredible rush of images, lights, energies, sounds that I couldn't process. They were too vast and too unfamiliar. Um, but it was a, a sense of being plunged 
into a, a deep universal reservoir of, of, of meaning and energy. And it was just rushing around me uh, as I was rising up that pillar of light. And I just felt myself expanded and shaken and awestruck. But at some point, my, at that point, I was still struggling with this in my life, uh, the, the self-critic. It, it came in and again wondered, what am I doing? And is this where I'm supposed to be going? And my body collapsed to the ground. I, I seemed to pick up on a sense of patience and disappointment <laughs> from the people around me, those beings. And one of them came up to me and said, you have to learn how to bear the weight of that tree. And then they left. And then that, that visionary experience ended at that point. Then the last one happened on the fourth night. I went to sleep. And when my first dream emerged, it was really hard to make sense of what was going on, but it slowly clarified. And what it was, was I found myself hovering about two or three inches above this luminous blue ocean that was vast and that I, I knew immediately that that ocean was somehow sentient. It was, you know, this was back before, many, many years before Avatar and anything like that, but it was a kind of bioluminescent blue. And I felt it communicating with me at a nonverbal direct level. And I knew I was getting some kind of download or upload from it, some kind of communion experience, but I couldn't process it at the level of my meaning-making self. But I was suspended there over that luminous blue ocean for a long time. Then I woke up. And so that was the end of the, the four nights of a visionary experience. Because I was into Krishnamurti at the time, I wondered to myself, um, is this related to Krishnamurti? When he went through his, uh, what was famously called for him, the process, Kundalini-like events and uh, visitation kind of events where he would speak in his forgotten childhood language and be interacted with by some beings that uh, urged him to allow the energy to, to move through him and, and change his body. So I, I wondered if this was related to that. But about maybe six months to a year later, Whitley Strieber came out with his first communion book. And it's not something I would have looked at normally. I was at that time not interested in UFOs at, at all, anything like that. That was a childhood thing I'd left behind, and I was more into uh, contemplative and philosophical pursuits. But I was going somewhere, and I saw it at the airport, and I picked it up, and I read it just for fun. And I was struck, one, by actually how deep it was in terms of his own philosophical reflections, but two, how many parallels to my own experiences I found in some of his narrative. Um, he also described being taken by some beings to a place and asked to stand in a circle and his body moving and him having an experience of seeing different worlds. And he also talked about a uh, a luminous ocean at one point that he witnessed. So I was struck by those things and wrote to him and just let him know the series of, of dreams that I had gone through the, the year before. And he did write back, but he didn't say very much. So a succession of four nights strongly suggests a coherence among the events as stages of an overarching experience. These beings in the circle on the third night, the bioluminescent, sentient ocean, have the connections remained vague among these, or did some distillation arrive regarding these four nights? I definitely have the sense of them being one thing or one process. I would say, for me, I, I haven't gotten full clarity on, you know, for instance, what they meant by, um, what was meant by 
learning to bear the weight of the tree. I did feel that there was a connection between the description of levels and modes and types of consciousness that I listened to on the second night, the type of presence that I encountered from the beings on the third night with them opening me up to radically altered states and modes of experiencing, and the fourth night where there was this deep pre-verbal or non-verbal kind of communication. So it felt like taking me almost from the subtle realm, if you're, if you're using the, the yogic or the integral concepts of the gross, subtle, and causal. You know, the, the buffalo was a gross, almost like a gross level encounter. And then the, the subtle was listening to the voices, talk about consciousness, and, and having the initiatory experience where there's a lot of subtle visionary experience. And then the third night, while it had a subtle visionary component to it of a luminous ocean, most of the content felt like it was causal level material. Causal meaning kind of open, void, um, formless kind of dimension where there was a, it was more of a intuitive, formless participation in a meaning or intelligence. Um, and it definitely felt directed and um, instructive, though I don't know that I've yet made full sense of it. Um, I've definitely become much more open to this being uh, at least occupying some borderland between what is called classical mystical experience and what is called uh, you know, encounter experiences uh, with interdimensional or extraterrestrial um, beings. One of the fruits that I've noticed, though I didn't really put this together until maybe a year or two ago, was an increasing flowering in my life of an ability to listen to intuitive intelligence and promptings. I have been often a very verbal kind of person, but uh, this has definitely unfolded in my life where I, I, I now feel I can participate in sense-making and meaning-making at that intuitive level much better than I, I could earlier in life. And I, I see kind of an introductory echo to that in that fourth night experience. So you've experienced a maturation, a fruition in recent years where it sounds like you're able to bear the intensity of that tree. Might the tree have been symbolic of your family tree, not of blood or birth, but the liminal, the anomalous family tree that you're an emissary of, a mediating presence for between realms, beings? Or is that too far afield? That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that before, but it does make sense. I think many of my family members are, are Scottish pragmatic kind of people, <laughs> um, and they don't have much patience for that kind of thing. But there are a few mostly running matrilineally people in my life, in my, in my family tree, who have been intuitive and open to um, spiritual depths and exploration. And I feel that I am definitely in that lineage within my family. Um, and, and, you know, with all the dynamics that go with that of being one of the weird ones within the overall context of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of more conventional people. One thing that I would say that, you know, occurred to me, but again, you know, I don't regard what I went through as, a Christian experience, but I wanted to just, you know, very, relate very briefly an experience that I had had uh, some years earlier that also connects to a kind of tree <laughs> metaphor. And that was in high school, I had gone through uh, a very intense period of my life before my mother had that divorce that led to the homelessness. She was in a pretty difficult and bad relationship. And it was in you know my household and we all experienced the brunt of that. And it was, it was pretty rough. Um, but then around me, many people died. Many, many of my classmates died in different bizarre ways. One, 
attempted to kill himself in order to become a vampire. One shot himself. Another one died in Russian roulette. Another one was run over by a boat. Another one went down in a helicopter. So all of that happened to me within a very short window of time. And it devastated me. And it really changed my personality. And I went into a very dark place. And my friend's mother noticed that and asked if she could help me by sending me off to a retreat. I was in Texas and she offered to send me off to a retreat in California. So I accepted and I was able to go up to the, the mountains of California and you know, just the, the, the pristine views, the waterfalls, the, the beautiful air, the, the crisp mountain environment, and the incredible silence. And several things happened, you know, up there. One, I just encountered this feeling of presence that pervaded everything that changed my life by encountering this, this one day's encounter with this feeling of this incredible, still wise presence that revealed to myself the knottedness in my own heart um, and, and led me to begin to try to relax that. But in that experience, a couple things happened that, you know, again, I didn't identify as Christian at that time, but I was, uh, at one point I was walking in the woods and I was looking up at the trees and I fell off of a cliff basically and landed on a, you know, a water drainage pipe on the side and it split my side open. And, you know, I went back to my home trailing blood and they had to stitch that up. Then another day uh, in the same area, I was riding a bicycle and the wheels got caught in this little rut in the road and I couldn't escape from that rut. I was just barreling down the hill with my tire stuck inside this rut and it led me straight to a cross-like telephone pole into which I collided and flew and then I ended up basically scratching up, ripping up my hands and my forehead. So when I looked at myself in the mirror later, I saw that I had like what to me looked like all the wounds of Christ. <laughs> you know, I had my, you know, the, the, <laughs> <laughs> um, the side split open from the Roman spear and the blood on my hands and head and um, tortured on a cross. And, you know, so it led me to flirt with Christianity for a little bit, but I got totally disappointed by it and never stuck with it. And, but there was that looming tree experience of one watching the tree leading me to get split open and the other one, the tree to, <laughs> um, you know, wound me in other ways, but all of them kind of served symbolically and metaphorically um, to kind of help me constellate around this image of, of the need for radical self-transformation, um, the need for a deep, deep, letting go and a surrendering to other power um, beyond what the ego can grasp in order for real human flowering to happen. So even though I didn't stay in that Christian circle for more than a couple years, it just didn't fit. I think there was this, that there was this echo to those experiences and this latter one in terms of what was most transformative for me in those four nights was letting go in the face of the otherness to see and to allow um, whatever was present to unfold itself. What was going on for your mom during those four nights? I presume she was there with you. Sure. She didn't seem to have any visionary experiences herself, though she actually is a, a pretty open kind of person. Um, and in fact, I would say even more intuitively open than me. But um, she was during that whole time on a kind of uh, spiritual journey herself and a process of unfolding um, that also led to some beautiful fruitions in her life. Uh, nothing exactly paralleled those four nights, you know, when, except that she was present with me. Um, you know, we used to, uh, our, our ritual at night was to put on a candle in the tent and read from. Uh, a spiritual or sacred text, and then sleep. Um, and so, you know, 
often I would read her something and she would fall asleep in the middle of it. And um, I would sometimes complain that she fell asleep at the best part or whatever, but she always said, no, it all went in, you know, it all went in um, anyway. And uh, uh, so I think the only thing that really practically was there was that she was there and able to hear my accounts and not immediately dismiss them. Um, she was also careful not to run anywhere with them in terms of like leading me to different associations, but she was able to be there as a, an empathic witness and a supportive person to let me just hold the process and let it be as it was and unfold as it was going to. Do you feel that the conditions of being homeless, ostracized, were they somehow key or requisite in preparing the way for this initiatory series of experiences over those four nights? I really think so. I think even though those were, that was basically the hardest year of my life physically, one of them for sure, um, it was also very clarifying and simplifying and, and led to a lot of internal integration um, and an ability to connect and commune with my environment and to get still and integrated in myself that had I been in the midst of normal routines of school or work, um, daily interactions with people, I don't know that this would have ever unfolded so easily and so powerfully. I think it was that environment of basically being on a wilderness retreat surrounded by silence and primal powers that allowed me to open up to that degree for those things to unfold. I'm not certain about that, but it really feels like those conditions were precipitating for what happened. Regarding the series of friends and acquaintances that died in such extreme and bizarre circumstances, what do you make of that now in retrospect? I don't know if, if they're linked. It, it definitely seemed that there was a, a pall <laughs> over that school, um, that, that something intense was going on. Um, I think everybody was, was deeply shaken by that. And um, I actually suffered, you know, I, I think before uh, these powerful events um, in, in the wilderness when I was homeless, uh, I, I lost another friend uh, right at that time also. I had been in a rock band with Billy Bob Thornton's brother, um, Jimmy Thornton. And we, when I was in Texas, we were making music and we were actually working on the soundtrack uh, for what became Sling Blade. Um, he was still writing the screenplay and we were working on a soundtrack for that. And, you know, so we had close connection and I, he was like a big brother for me. Jimmy was. And just becoming homeless had forced me away from him and away from the band. And while I was out there, I heard he, he died from a heart attack, you know, way too young age. I think he was just 29. So, you know, I don't know what cosmically or synchronistically connects all of these things, but I know that for me, having experienced those things, each one of them was like a deep wound, but also a kind of, of purging and clarification because it really forced me to confront what I take seriously in my own life and what I have squandered in terms of inattention or carelessness about my relationships. There were several, you could say, classically ET-related, ET literature-related experiences while I was in Sedona. And, you know, if you uh, we were when we were living in the wilderness. It was more down in the Cottonwood area, still about thirty minutes from Sedona. But eventually, we moved up to Sedona. And if you know about Sedona, it's you know a very new age place, and you find a lot of stuff going on there. Some of which I think is deep and authentic and real, and a lot of which is pre-rational indulgence and, and fantasy, and mm. people just um, you know larping pretty much at 
being ETs or whatever they want to be. So I, I definitely encountered both extremes there. Uh, some people who are obviously attempting to capitalize on channeling and on ETs and things like that to, to make quick money and you know those kinds of things that I didn't respect. But there were some experiences that were, I think, truly interesting and anomalous. The two that I had mentioned to you before um, had to do with encounters with men in black. And this was before X-Files was talking about those things or before the Men in Black movies came out. So at the time, the idea of Men in Black was just something that was circulating in communities that were connected to these things, but had not entered the mainstream yet. And so several different things happened. One, you know, I had been told, because I ended up getting my first, one of my first jobs, I think my second job once we got out of the homeless condition was working at a convenience store. And I would hear from people who would, you know, come to the store, they would tell me that, do you see that mountain way off in the distance? That's called Secret Mountain. And there's a military base there. It's a secret military base, but it's there. And I didn't take it seriously. I thought this was just part of the metafufu <laughs> Sedona kind of lore. And one night I was working at the convenience store and I worked the night shift there. And I saw some people wandering on the desert road because it was, you know, there's nothing around where I was wandering on the desert road, looking very disheveled. And they slowly wandered towards the store and they came inside and their clothes were ripped up and dirty. They had you know, things in their hair. They looked incredibly dazed um, and they just kind of wandered around the store, not saying anything. And they looked like they were in shock. And eventually they settled down in one corner of the store and just sat down. And I wasn't sure what to make of them. It was very early morning, like 3 a.m. or something like that. And I, they were the only people around. So I walked over to them and I asked them if I could help them. I offered to give them some free drinks. And I, I did. And gradually they kind of came around and started talking to me. And they asked me if I had ever seen any men in black. And I, I said, no, I, I really don't know, you know what you're talking about. And they said, there are men in black who are associated with sightings. Have you ever seen any unusual lights in the sky? And I said, yeah, I think I have sometimes. And they said, well, we've gotten mixed up in that somehow. We've seen some things and they're after us. And they said that they were fleeing, that they had been at one house and that there had been some men in black that had been looking through the windows of their house and they had fled and were, you know, driving across the, the desert and being pursued by something. And they ended up crashing their car and rolling it into an, a, you know, a ravine. And then they had just wandered from their car out of the desert until they found my convenience store. So that's what they said. And then we, you know, I, I gave them a little food and eventually they, they wandered off out of the store. And then I, um, when the morning came around, I saw a tow truck go by hauling what looked very much like a, a wrecked car with you know, sage or brush, you know, jammed into the grill, just taking that down the road. And some police came into the store to ask me if I had seen any people and also a man in a suit. He wasn't wearing all black, but a man in a suit came in and asked me if I had seen some people. And, you know, I told them I had, um, but I also felt a little empathy for them. So I didn't give them any kind of clear indication of what they had said or where they had walked. I have no idea if what they told me was true or not. I still thought at the time that maybe they were embellishing things. Maybe they just were drunk or high and had crashed and they just wanted to tell me a story, but I wasn't sure. So later we moved to another place, a log cabin on a road called Lizardhead Lane. 
it was the last road before you know the national forest land began our our house was basically the last house before the national forest began that led back in the direction of what's called Boynton Canyon and beyond that actually is Secret Mountain though when we moved there we weren't thinking about that at all but different unusual things happened in that log cabin of a lot of weird things i could chronicle about subterranean sounds and lights and different things like that that people witnessed and experienced but one thing that happened unusual that was unusual for me related to this men in black thing was i woke up one morning hearing this powerful helicopter noise and i went outside and saw flying directly overhead a group of about six all black helicopters unmarked in any way they looked like military helicopters but they were entirely black and they were open on the sides and i could see men dressed entirely in black uniforms standing in the you know open um cargo area on the side of that that military helicopter and they flew over my head and they were flying in the direction of the um of secret mountain and one man had what looked like a floodlight and he was leaning out of the side of the helicopter and flashing the floodlight in patterns in the direction of the mountain and then they just went over my house and off into the canyon area and I lost sight of them they came back the second night and i mean the second early morning i woke up again and i went outside and this time i climbed up on the roof of the house and i was watching them and they flew over the house and i could see again the black uniformed people on the inside and one helicopter actually stopped and circled my house looking at me before they rejoined the group and went back into the canyons and so after seeing those helicopters and the men in entirely black uniforms i was beginning to open up more to the idea that there really was something going on back there that maybe could be related to the subterranean sounds we heard and to that earlier encounter with those people who had been fleeing the black uniformed people the last little part of that story that i could add is i told a friend about that encounter and his dad and his dad's buddy were ex vietnam guys and they decided that was enough of a prompt that they wanted to go do a reconnaissance in the area and they um decided to do it and they came back and they said they weren't able to get up to secret mountain they encountered a guy in all black on horseback who told them in no uncertain terms if you value your life turn around and never come back so they said that that's what they had seen and that they were not going to go back <laughs> so yeah that's the end of the black men in black encounters that i, I that i can recall <laughs> pretty ballsy move to climb up on your rooftop and call them out like that would you make the same move today <laughs> I don't know. You know, back then I didn't really know that much. You know, it was not part of my knowledge or part of the mainstream knowledge, so I just knew a little bit about from what I'd heard from people in the convenience store and those people who I, you know, wandered in. So I I didn't really probably know what I was tangling or messing with at that time. Right now I might definitely be more cautious. And then the peculiar absurdity of its name being Secret Mountain. <laughs> It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. But we often find these associations. Think of all the places with the word devil in their moniker. It's a little on the nose, but it happens over and over. Geographic locales which are home to high strangeness are inordinately marked with such appellations. As the Romans said, nomenes numen, which was a name is powerful. The name has force. Be sure to catch part 2 of our conversation with Bruce Alderman. April 6, 1966. Outside of Melbourne, Australia, at Westall High School, students were going about their day. 
a group of kids on the schoolyard noticed something strange overhead. A silver-colored saucer traveling directly above the schoolyard. Classic morphology, disc-shaped, domed top, roughly 16 feet in diameter from edge to edge of the outer disc. Some of the children ran inside to gather more witnesses to the astonishing sight. Then, the school bell rang and some 200 students and staff members flooded the yard, all witnessing the craft. Thinking on his feet, a chemistry teacher was able to take a series of photographs of the object and the frantic school children, which were later confiscated. The craft appeared to be focused on power lines nearby. Conventional airplanes arrived on the scene, gave chase, and the saucer-shaped craft darted away as though shot from a gun. Some students climbed over a perimeter fence and headed toward another craft landed nearby. Two girls in particular were first to arrive and approached extremely close to the landed saucer, reportedly within a few feet of the object. As the other students arrived, all saw the craft ascend and depart. The earth was scorched where the ship had rested. One of the two girls first to arrive was taken away in an ambulance and never seen again. Another witness in a nearby locale reported seeing two saucers landed side by side. The vehicles had no markings, seams, or rivets, and appeared as though poured and formed from a single mold. Palpable heat emanated from their bodies. Other students arrived and observed the double landing. The two craft ascended and departed. Later, students and witnesses were assembled in the school and told in stern terms never to discuss the event. The warning was strengthened with the later arrival of men in uniforms and suits, threatening the children to maintain silence, possibly because they were tremendous dicks. Two great artistic sources to learn more about this historic event are the book Dark Files by Michael Schratt and the movie Westel 66, A Suburban UFO Mystery by Rosie Jones. It can be found on YouTube. There are links to the book and the movie in the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, past life regression, anomalous experiences, and creativity as a spiritual path. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or click the link in the show notes. Also, The Experiencer Group, a members-only site for experiencers of anomalous phenomena, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, precognition, clairvoyance, lucid dreaming, remote viewing, abduction, contact with non-human entities, and more. This site is a private sanctuary offering community support and group meetups with others around the world who've had similar experiences. Click the link in the show notes and get one month free. I've decided to put my private personal diaries on my Patreon page. Private because no one knows I have them. Personal because I stole them from persons who refused to become patrons, and they are intense. It makes me relieved I've never kept a diary. And who has the time? I'm so busy keeping secrets. Secrets are for patrons. Become one. I won't say a word. Show click, link note, show click, click, link show note, note click, link, show click, note, click, link, click, click. click.
Wishing.